recording in progress okay hello everyone and welcome back to a woman's place podcast um once again <laughs> once again on this has been a long break between uh podcasts but um work schedules and covid and post-covid and different things just coming in the way and we're only human beings well i am and uh is able to plow on i am not a plower no but certainly didn't get covid so you know Um, i'm actually undefeated undefeated it's so sad that i'm i'm defeated because i was you know what it was i was just i was like an idiot i listened to the government and i i was out and about with no mask like i was in several places with a lot of people and no mask on because I was like yeah it's grand and anyway it'll only take five days until it's over if I do get it but that wasn't the truth at all it's really misleading um like even my housemate who got it from me I think he was seven days before he was negative so like yeah five day thing is such it's so misleading so misleading so um after our hiatus we're still on our politics kick mm-hmm. so today i want to talk about our public services and why they seem to be disappearing yes why they are disappearing um so i just want to have that discussion because i think it's really important that people understand that public services were amazing in many countries around the world um in between say the 40s and the 80s and the people who grew up in the 40s and the 80s like what we might call kind of boomers and gen x's like they they received a far better level of care from their governments than we receive from ours mm-hmm. and i think it's kind of just interesting to look back at the the historical reasons for that well in some ways right not in quality wise no not not, not in all ways, but I suppose, as we'll see through this podcast, there are things that used to be public services in many countries that just aren't there anymore. Yeah. Um, and obviously we have things now that they didn't have back then, but I don't think it should be you get this and we take this away. It should be you get all of this because yeah. you pay taxes, you know. Um, yeah. And in some places, like in France, for example, like the tax is well over 40 percent. You know, they're taking nearly half your paycheck for these for what they say they're using on these essential services. So just thought it might be interesting to have a look back today. Um, so we're going to start with why did we get public services? Like, where did they come from? Um, because throughout history, governments and kings haven't been known for exactly taking care of the people who live um, and suffer under them. And it was actually um, the British who really kind of spearheaded this whole movement in the West. Um, because they spearheaded the cause of a lot of these, this need for public services with their massive industrialization. So between kind of like you sorry, know, sorry, seven, are you is your mic brushing up against something? It could be. One second, let me move my hair. Yeah, it's the hair again. It's the hair. The hair. I'll just have. I'll have to shave it off. I'll have to shave it off. It'll, it's got to go. Uh, one second, I'll actually get it in the right place. So. The British uh, kickstarted the Industrial Revolution and this 
this led to massive urbanization all over Britain. And then eventually, as that urbanization and industrialization spread, a lot of places in the West became extremely industrialized and extremely urbanized. So you had huge numbers of people living in very poor conditions in cities and towns, working in mines or factories where injuries were really common. Children went to work very young. And, you know, there was you had no rights. So you had no weekend, you had no unions, you had nobody to stand up for the people who worked in those places. But um, in 1899, the British went to war with the Boers, who were uh, Dutch settlers in South Africa, and they had to uh, they, they introduced conscription and they had to reject between 40 and 60 percent of the people who applied for the army, the people who um, who were being you know brought in and tested. Um, so that's like what half of the people that they that they accepted um, on paper couldn't pass a physical exam. You know, because they were interject, that Che Guevara in the 40s when he was he was a, t- a young fella, he he had asthma as a child. He really bad lungs. And that was the reason he couldn't be accepted into the army to go and fight. And th- this happened to a lot of a, a lot of um, British uh, people who, who applied to the army as well. And it, it wasn't just asthma like asthma is a um, you know, it, it's not something that you can. It's quite it's, it, we know less about it, about less. how We know less about how to prevent it. But malnourishment, we know exactly how to prevent that. And, yeah. um, yeah. you know, having rickets, having rickets from from lack of vitamin D, we know exactly how to pre- prevent that. And they knew back then how to prevent all of that. And almost all of the ones who um who were rejected were working class men right. um, and then when the war ended a lot of the writers associated the problems of the British Empire with the poor health of the British people arguing that a malnourished and unhealthy nation could simply not rule the biggest empire in the world so the push for public services at the beginning was very much based on we need a strong army to defend our massive empire um, so it was very much, a, it wasn't, you know, for care or for love. It was, we'll need you to fight and die for us someday. And you have to be yeah. healthy to do that. So they introduced a couple of things like free school meals for the very, very poor and um, a school um, health program where doctors would go around and try and catch things like rickets very early on so that you could try your best to, to cure them. They introduced things like the minimum wage um, and then the old age pension and national insurance, uh, which in England like would pay for free medical treatment for people under a certain um, under a certain threshold, and then they went. These back. are all coming from like conservatives. No, so well, when 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 the um, when the national insurance act was introduced um, and the minimum wage was introduced, those were liberal governments. So nineteen oh nine. Um, from 1906, I think, to about 1913 or 14, the Liberal government was in power. And obviously, being Liberals, they were more inclined to spend the taxpayers' money mm. um, because they were collecting taxpayer money. But once World War I began, the first people, they didn't introduce conscription in World War I at the start. They just asked for volunteers. And again, an awful lot of those volunteers um, were rejected. So they were graded one, two or three and um, their medical um, ability and health. And then that determined what jobs you could have. Mm-hmm. And over a quarter of all men were graded three. 
So that meant that they couldn't go to war and they had to stay at home and do things like, you know, farm laboring or working in a, an essential service like um, like teaching or, or nursing or something like that. And this really kind of affect, this really affected the British because the Germans were throwing everybody at, into the army, you know, like the, they were throwing all of their young people, regardless, not, not regardless of, of, um, of ability, but they were accepting people who were, um, wouldn't have been accepted in the British Army. Um, so again, at the end of the um, at the end of the war, they they again compared this thing of uh, David Lloyd George, who was the Prime Minister at the time, said you cannot conduct an A one empire with a C three population. So again, they noticed that so many men were being rejected, and so public health became really top of the agenda. And they gave money to train doctors, increase sanitation in hospitals. Um, to try and kind of rub these problems out at the beginning. Like if a woman gives birth in a healthy environment and is checked on after birth, you know, that's one more soldier that's going to survive to fight and die for you. Yeah. So like the whole capitalist system, I think we're, you know, I think people are coming to realize that a bit more in general, like they see it in America with it, like abortion rights. Like we covered this before when we talked about abortion, like the whole reaction around abortion is because of voters but also because of workers and also soldiers so the whole capitalist system set up on this like necessity to grow your economy more the economy is just like the number of people basically in you know the number of workers the number of workers yeah yeah um so like after World War One, um, they built half a million homes in England, which, you know, is a huge project to take on. Um, and they kind of build it as this homes for heroes that like, you know, if you fought and, and um, in the First World War or if for a lot of people, if you were widowed by the First World War, you were entitled to one of these new homes or you could at least apply for one of these new homes. Um, and they build it as a, as a, you know, a payback for all the sacrifices that the British people had made. But it was it was not. It, that's not what it was. It was they knew you've known since the 1700s that poor housing is linked to poor health. So if you give them better housing, they're going to more likely be in better health to fight and die for you again. Um, and this this kind of continued um, in Britain until Hitler reared his ugly head. And in during the war in 1942, there was a report that came out called the Beverage Report. And the Beverage Report detailed five evils that blighted the lives of British people. And they were want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. And again, in World War Two, people were rejected for preventable um, diseases and preventable conditions. Um, and then after the Second World War, the Labour Party led by a guy called Clement Attlee came into power and they were the ones who really led the push for the massive wide range of services that became available in post-war Britain and this, therefore leaked to other countries like Ireland. This, so if, if one weren't the best with names now, but one had seen the crown, right? Um, yes, one that... would be going. One would be going back to um, I think season two, season maybe two. of the and crown. And that's the one where you know season they... one of the crown. Even he he shows up later, so he was Labour, like he was the head of the Labour um, Party when uh, Elizabeth's father was on the the the, the throne. 
yeah. he was there for the first the second world war and then I, he was re-elected then later on in the 50s after winston left right? after winston yeah was, after poor winnie that was yeah. like, if, I I, if memory serves me right he has a banger of a mustache he does yes he mm-hmm. has a bang yeah i'm thinking of the right guy you know him from the crown he has a maddie mustache the, he's he, not anthony eden though from later on Oh, I think is is that the same timeline as when that um the coal slide happened, or is that later? No, that's that's no, that would be right. Actually, I think that's right. Yeah, someone will probably right. someone who's maybe watched it more recently would be able to help me. But um, yeah. So what what Clement Attlee did was he brought in um he he brought in the NHS basically, right? Yeah. Which is one of the huge big push forward for the British people uh, and for the West in general to for for a for a government to be offering like completely free healthcare you know completely free so for example hospital services are free primary care GPs dentists opticians pharmacists health visitors vaccinations midwives ambulances like all of these things like um if you needed a home health 24 hours a day you were going to get one from the NHS at the beginning. Wow. You know, if you needed glasses, a walking stick, crutches, a wheelchair, you were going to get them from the NHS, no problem whatsoever. And like this was extraordinary. It increased the life expectancy for men from 65 to 70 and for women from 71 to 77. Wow. Like that's incredible, you know? Yeah. And Funnily enough, when the beverage report was actually published in Britain, Eamon de Valera, they spoke about it in the Doyle and Eamon de Valera was like, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's excellent. We must do something about that. And he set up a separate department of social services um, who never, ever met. And it just faded away. Really? So we, they yeah, we didn't, we didn't get that. So they never met. Was he just trying to, uh, like, was he just trying to, like... He just, he was asked to respond to it and that's how he responded. And then, because the war was still ongoing at that time, he just let it, you know, fade into the background. You know what that reminds me of? Slauncha Care. Yeah. Yeah, we don't hear too much about that anymore, do we? Is the, doing the exact same thing. What happened was they were meeting and then there was, like, nothing fucking happening. And then, and then, like two people resigned. Didn't resigned, they? yeah. And they were like, "We can't because it's just this is just being held up and la la la." And now, fucking Paul Reed and cervical cancer guy are managing it. Oh, that's gonna go. That's gonna go so well. So well. So well. Imagine. So after they introduced the NHS, they also went on a huge um, building program across England as well. Um, on the one hand, it was because so much of big cities like London had been destroyed by the Blitz. But on the other hand, it was also this idea that now they were kind of playing, they were dancing the stance of the Russians and they weren't, you know, the Cold War, they weren't sure whether they should be, whether they should be prepping another army, basically, whether they should be raising, you know, trying to raise more children to um, to, to join the army. So they built an awful lot, an awful lot of council and social housing. Um, and rehomed people who lived in tenements and rehomed people who lived in like unsafe housing um, and you know generally did quite a good job these were genuinely were like safe comfortable kind of all mod cons houses and and apartments and while I personally 
wouldn't want to live at the top of a 35 story building if the option the other option is living in a tenement I'd take it Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so so a lot of people did and this kind of spread across Europe um and they a lot of countries introduced this kind of social welfare safety net and many countries like Ireland introduced healthcare that was free at point of access so you don't have to pay immediately if you are if you were needing a medical attention you'll get the medical attention and get the bill later you know and this again as I said spread across and it, it kind of because so much of Europe was destroyed by the by the bombings in World War II um this this led to greater prosperity for people because the government was plowing money into house building then people could get jobs and the secondary and tertiary industries from those jobs, you know, people became slightly more affluent than they would have been before the war. And in a lot of countries now they're living in quite a um, quite a nice, quite a, quite a nice place to live compared to a tenement. And the same thing kind of did happen in Ireland. Like in the 30s, we built the hydroelectric dam in the Shannon, which was huge for, for Ireland, like rural electrification was massive, you know, it improved people's lives hugely. And in the 50s, the government did build an awful amount of council housing and through the 60s as well. And in England, through the 50s and 60s, even though the Tory governments were returned to office, they didn't touch they didn't touch the welfare state. They did not try to take away the NHS. They made no attempts at slowing down council housing. They let it run that what the Labour Party had planned. They just let it run. And I personally think and a lot of um, a lot of commentators would agree that it was because the welfare state had become embedded in national consciousness. So people kind of, to say they expected it is, is not right because that, that kind of gives off an air of arrogance. But they, the Tory government knew that to try and take it away would be so unpopular that they would never get back into office again. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this kind of feeling in the air that we suffered for, you know, five years of constant bombing we deserve a nice place to live we deserve to have our children go to school and not have to work um when they're children you know so that that continued um until the end of the 70s and this is when we start to see the pulling of public services away because this is when we start to see the introduction of a new ideology, neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. So neoliberalism was like, you know, it came in very, very slowly into countries like Ireland, France, Spain, etc. But it really came in with a bang in two countries in the world, the the two big players, I suppose you'd say, of the West, um, America and England, America and and the UK. So essentially, neoliberalism sees competition as the defining characteristic of human relations. So the idea is that if you if you tax and regulate uh, businesses, they will not grow. Public services should be run by private companies, the organization and labor, the organization of labor and the collective bargaining of unions um, uh, impede growth according to neoliberalism and the Um, question I'm going to throw out here like how do you define growth here capitalist GDP that's it profit GDP yeah profit GDP 100% that's all 
the that's all that neoliberalism really cares about. Like neoliberalism itself is hard to define. It is a hard to define um, issue. And you'll hear people that, that have different definitions of it. You know, someone else might have a different definition of it than me. But at its core, what it is, is that government planning should, go, the government should just stay away. It would remind one of the laissez-faire attitude that the British government had around the, eight, the turn of the um, 19th century, like 1800 to like 1870. There was this idea that the market will take care of itself. Yeah. So you just shouldn't interfere. And um, yeah. But when there is like the, when the government wasn't interfering, what you get is child labour. Like just to be very yes, clear. yeah, yes, of course. Um, so neoliberalism was coined first in uh, 1938 um, by two guys, Ludwig von Mies and Friedrich Hayek. They were both from Austria, and they both saw um, something like Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, which was to get the economy kickstarted and to offer, like in the 1930s when the Great Depression happened, to offer people a safety net. They saw that as um, occupying the same spectrum as communism and Nazism, that the government has too much control over what private businesses can do, and therefore it's close to Nazism and close to communism. Yeah. Who said this, sorry? So that was the two Austrians, Ludwig von Mies and Friedrich Hayek. Okay. Uh, he, the Hayek wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom, which was published in 1944. And he, he became very popular with his ideas that government planning would crush individualism and lead to totalitarian control. And in America, um, the road it was Anne, is it Anne Rand? Anne Rand. Anne Rand, yeah. Yeah, Anne Rand, yeah. So Hayek's view was widely read by a lot of really influential people. And eventually it was, um, it, it gave way to the ideas, ideas of this guy called Milton Friedman, who was from Chicago. And he argued that businesses were more efficient than the government in running services. And that by taxing businesses as high as they did, the government prevented these businesses from expanding, right? And he, he wrote a couple of articles and they were pretty popular, but they were popular with one, two people in particular who came to really define the 1980s. If you ask people in the West who are the two leaders that they'd associate with the 1980s the most, they'll at least one of the names they give will be Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And that's because Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan essentially had the same ideology, yeah. which was Friedman's ideology. They were great friends. They were, I, yeah. So, as soon as they got into power, they cut taxes for the rich and um, they cut down on postal services, pu public services like the post, mm -hmm. energy, education, public transport. Um, so like Margaret Thatcher is really famous in England for taking milk away from the school children. Mm. So the kids in England used to get a, like a half a pint of milk every single day because it's, you know, at that time there was a belief that it was really good for you. It was full of calcium and vitamin D and things like that. And she cut that, she scrapped it, she took it away. Um, we all know what she did uh, to the miners in the miners' strike, you know, letting people starve for, for months on end, and what she did in Northern Ireland, but that's not what I'm here to talk about, really. I'm here more to talk about her kind of ideology and how, how it led to, essentially, like an awful lot of our problems that we have today. 
because freedom yeah. from government intervention, freedom from trade unions means the freedom to suppress wages, the freedom to poison rivers, endanger workers, charge huge rates of interest. Freedom from tax means the freedom from the distribution of wealth that helps to lift people out of poverty. You know, there's this idea of trickle down economics that the money will eventually trickle down to the poorest. And we know that that is simply not true. The gap between the rich and poor has grown unbelievably in the, the West over. Not how capitalism works, like capitalism and new, which is, you know, neoliberalism is capitalism, is, um, is a, a bottom up process, structure. Like it's bottom up. Exactly. It, it often reminds me of a cartoon that I saw when I was in college of the uh, Russian um, the Russian society. You know, it's a, it's a pyramid with all of the serfs on the bottom and they're whole, literally on their backs holding up all the rest of the, of the economy and the entire society. And, and that's exactly what we have now. Mm-hmm. We have the billions of workers across the planet holding up this terrible system for, I don't know, a thousand people, yeah. A thousand cunts. I don't know. Um, like the privatization um of energy, water, trains, health, education, roads, prisons, like all of that has happened in America, and a lot of it has happened in England. And it was all down to the policies of those two people, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. If you were watching like, the Crown, this is the part of the of the Crown where Elizabeth brings her in and is like, "Are you sure this is like?" you know, you should be doing this. People are very unhappy. And she's like, I am sure that this is the best way to lift our people out on, get them pulled up their bootstraps and get to work. And everyone was like, wait, no, this is not okay. And her entire- not at all what we want. Her entire cabinet in this series anyway, are like, "Uh, bitch, people are really unhappy. Like, I don't know about this now. This seems like wrong. And she's like, no, don't defy me. And she cooks everyone dinner. She does. And then she fires them all. Then she fires them all. Yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. She did. Oh, my God. Yeah. So in America, they call it Reaganomics. um, And in England, they call it Thatcherism. But it's essentially a very, very similar system, you know. And Thatcherism states that the only things that the government should be in charge of or that they should put limits on is the defense of the realm and the standard of currency. Everything else should be left to people to do themselves, um, businesses to regulate themselves. Um, And we know that that simply does not work in any way, shape or form. But what's really interesting is that if Margaret Thatcher had been born 20 years earlier and she had tried this tack in the 1950s, tried to reduce public services, tried to take away council housing in the 1950s, it simply wouldn't have flown. It just wouldn't have. People would not have voted for her. There would have been a coup at Westminster because, again, that feeling that you should pay these people back for what they suffered um, was still there in the 1950s and well into the 60s. It was only when a lot of those people had died in the 80s that she was able to really bring this in, you know? Right, yeah. Like, she cut the, the rate of tax from 83% for the highest, highest earners. I'm talking about million, million, millionaires in England were paying 83% of tax. She slashed that to 40%. Mm-hmm. 
However, she increased VAT from 8 to 15 percent. Yeah. Like, you know, how how can anybody not see what she's doing here? Yeah. And pass it on to the workers. It was only until I kind of got into business myself that I realized what a fucking scam VAT is, because like just a very quick, (laughs) just a very quick overview of what you can do with VAT if you are a business. So you can charge VAT, but you have to pay VAT. Okay. So like, say you're importing or say you're selling a steak. Okay. I have to, I have to pay for the VAT on the steak and then I charge my customer VAT and that's the price. But at the end of the year, I can claim back the VAT if I'm charging VAT. So that means that whatever that VAT is, that percentage, 12.5% in many in cases in Ireland, that goes into private pockets. So it's actually, so actually a lot of the VAT actually doesn't go to the government. It goes back to a private business. Yeah, so it's, ju- it's just like a, a circle of money and whoever, like the person at the end of, sorry, a funnel of money and the person at the end of the funnel is always already rich. But like, I think our, yeah, but I think our, my perception of that definitely was like that it goes to the government and like it's a certain amount of it obviously does, but the, a lot of it goes back into private pockets, which, you know, whatever, um, which is, you know, it's just another way of funneling, as you said, another way of funneling wealth from people who have to buy anything. Like you as a private citizen, you can't, as a worker, an employee, you can't claim back VAT on anything unless you have a business. So No, you can't. And even the things that you can claim back tax on are pitiful. You know, like just for example, um, if you work in like a construction job, you can claim 400 euro a year back for um, like, you know, supplies like hard hats and boots. But anyone who works in a construction job will tell you that they spend far more than that on boots in a year because you can't wear 20 euro boots to work like. You know, I wonder how much um, nurses are allowed to claim back. You wonder how much nurses? Oh, mm. not a lot. I wouldn't think. I really wouldn't think. Um, so this whole idea of taxation, um, like that it should be cut for everybody, is because neoliberalists and capitalists believe that taxation is a form of theft. And John Locke, he was a huge, very, very, very influential economist. He um, he stated that taxation was a form of theft. Um, since the government's authority is derived from the people, taking money from the people is a form of theft. And I personally, and I, I don't like, I don't think that this is a ridiculous belief. I personally have no problem paying tax whatsoever if that money is going to help people who need help. Well, I think it's a moral meant to help yourself like beyond even just helping other people it's meant to be to help you so when you go to the doctor or you go to hospital you'll be taken care of yeah and and I just think I think it's an it's actually for me it's a moral belief you know yeah I believe deep in my heart that even though yes I can afford to pay 50 euro for the doctor you shouldn't have to. Nobody should have to pay that because it should be free. So if if that meant that they are going to take an extra ten or a week off me, I would be happy with that. It would not bother me. Mm-hmm. What bothers me is that we are taxed and the money is just pissed away. 
you know, a billion euro for a children's hospital, the most expensive children's hospital in the entire world on an island of six million people. Yeah. Like that, that annoys me. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think you can see, you can see that there's money there when they start giving themselves rises and handing out contracts like these willy nilly. Exactly. So like the money is there. They just do not want to spend it on us because okay, yeah. Leo Varadkar and to a lesser extent, Michal Martin are neoliberalists and they believe that taxation should be as low as possible and they believe in jobs for the boys and they believe in um, that the poor deserve deserve it, that the poor have somehow done something to for deserve it. For the people it. who get up early in the morning. Yeah, for the people who get up early in the morning. Yeah, precisely. And welfare cheats cheat us all. Chris yes. they cheat us all cheat. funnily enough welfare cheats cheat us all which trumpeted 500 million euros of savings was complete nonsense it was a false claim made by that department and Leo in order to make us think that benefit fraud is a massive problem in Ireland whereas it's actually not this is similar to remember we spoke about people saying that voter fraud was a massive problem and that's why they needed yeah. to introduce stricter voter ID laws this is the same thing yeah, he did that. Leo Varadkar did that. Welfare cheats cheat us all for political capital to rub up against his neoliberalist buddies and to show them that he was just as Tory as they were. And you know that's what, why he did that. Do you know what department he is currently the minister of? Stop it. Go on. He's the minister of labour and social welfare. That's great. That is that is peak peak Ireland right there. Let me just check it. Like, speaking of the Department of Social Welfare, Ireland has a, a visitor in the form of an American he's company. Enterprise Trade and Employment. So oh, he's over okay, that's a little bit different. Yeah. But speaking of privatization, like speaking of of of, of the Department of Social Welfare, um, Maximus, which is a significant government contract in America, has incorporated a subsidiary company in Ireland. They're contracted in America to help administer government schemes like Medicare and Medicaid. They made over four billion in revenue in 2021. Like they're here to scope out Irish government contracts and we don't fucking want them here. Because they have a terrible reputation. For example, in 2020, the state of Kansas dropped Maximus following a barrage of complaints. This is essentially JobBridge 2.0. And we all remember, well, I do. I remember how JobBridge went. It was a shit show. Yeah, absolute shit show. JobBridge, so for those of you who they tried to do recently as well, but it didn't work out so good. Yeah, so just for our listeners outside of Ireland, Jobbridge was essentially a, a really, really shitty program where you would work for your social welfare for a company for 40 hours a week uh, for experience. And at the end of it, they were supposed to give you a job, but they didn't. And you just went back on the dole and worked again for 40 hours a week for a shitty 100, 144 euro. And it gained, again, gained the Radker an awful lot of political capital, you know, to be seen to be getting these feckless, lazy layabouts, as all people on the dole were seen, and I think still are seen by a certain amount of people, um, back to work, you know, that they didn't want them hanging around the place in a, in a, in a country that at that time had 15% unemployment. Why did we have 15% unemployment? 
oh yeah because of a massive global recession oh yeah forgot about that it, it wasn't actually our own fecklessness it was the massive global recession um so this this period of that period of austerity that a lot of uh, government ministers like to tout is over um that that was caused by neoliberalism like can i just interrupt there really quick i just realized something as you were talking about austerity we are currently experiencing austerity via inflation yes definitely that's what they're doing because they couldn't introduce austerity again so they're introducing it via a backdoor fuck me anyway they're letting it happen they're letting it happen um like when like Chris and I were both quite young when the recession hit in 2008 like you know I wasn't I was had only had a part-time job I'm not sure if you were working at that stage at all but I obviously lost my part-time job very very quickly um and a lot of people that I know my like parents and people that my parents know they all lost their jobs as well because austerity took the form in Ireland of a program of fiscal consolidation so it was 20 billion 20 billion in spending costs and 12 billion in tax increases okay and ireland has really become across the world a poster child for economic regeneration through fiscal austerity mm-hmm. we are touted you see it i see it on american news on a regular basis um and on you know you'd see it on a lot of um german and, and greek channels as well talking about how Ireland's GDP is growing all the time and we were the first European country to pay back the IMF and we were the first European country to come out of recession but that's simply that is simply measured by GDP yeah and GDP does not translate to real life to boots on the ground no because it's just we are still American corporations funneling money through here so that's what boosts it up precisely it's like wearing a it's like wearing a bra with the fucking those chicken fillet things in them and being like look I have massive boobs and everyone's like look they have massive boobs over there well little do they know or maybe they do know that there's those fucking you know they're actually tiny it's padded the boobs the boobs are tiny but the bra is padded and the bra is Facebook and fucking do you know what I mean like Amazon and Uber and all of those other fucking companies like income inequality in Ireland is four times the OECD average four times the OECD average yeah we are still living with some of the most savage cutbacks in the area of health that remain in place since they were introduced withdrawal of medical cards cutting funding to women's shelters sexual health clinic hospital waiting lists getting longer and longer and beds still being taken away there are fifty-five thousand mortgages in arrears in ireland if you think the average house has four people that's almost a quarter of a million people who are still in mortgage arrears because they they could not pay their mortgage during the recession the the language that you use there around which um i only realized because of covid but the language you use there around the cutback of beds that actually obscures what is the truth because it's not a cutback of beds there's enough beds because my mom used to always be like oh i i went to the hospital and like they said there's no beds and then there was just magicked up a bed then at some point in the night 
what like there was beds there all along I don't understand and it's because not of beds but of personnel it's nurses it's a cutback on um on qualified nurses and then an inflation of um the amount of patients that they can take care of so like I, I if I you know it's like if you're working in any job um, you can only you can only look after a certain amount of people so like there might yeah. be 20 beds free but like you can't unless you have the staff to staff those beds you can't open the beds so you have to you know what I mean so that's what they yeah. that's actually what's happening when they say like there's not enough beds there are there are enough it's beds just no staff. it's just no staff to man them it's it's it, it's something that played out very pub I think it's something that played out very publicly in the healthcare system really important government run programs um, particularly in equality mm-hmm. so just for example and I'm not you're breaking up there really long this year Two seconds. You're breaking up a little bit. Talk. Not for treatment center for the wait, Tarika. Sorry, um, the National Council on People Office Active Citizenship. Tarika. Yeah. Oh yeah. You just. I'm. Me. I'm here. You're okay. I am. Yeah. I am here. Okay. You. I can hear you perfectly again. So just start from the beginning, because I. I apologize. Can. That's okay. I'll go. I'll go. <laughs> go on. <laughs> so. One of the other things that were savagely cut back were um, were kind of equality-based programmes. So the National Crime Council, the Committee on Racism and Multiculturalism, the Women's Health Council, the Ch- Children's Advisory Board, all of these kind of um, overarching bodies that were in charge of research and implementation of programmes in order to improve the lives of people, mm-hmm. they were all seriously cut back. Um, they lost 12,000 jobs and up to 40% of their funding, and they haven't gotten those back at all, even though they keep touting this idea that we're now out of the recession and that we are not even in recovery anymore, we're actually recovered. This is this is the line that they tout when that's simply not true. Um, and this has hit women, as all budget cuts do, this has hit women the hardest. Um, the majority of clients seeking advice from the government's um, budgetary advice service MABS are women between 26 and 40 of whom 60% have children and the mental health cuts were savage mm-hmm. like what they did to um, the counselling services in Ireland the psychologists the consultants um, like and I apologize for anybody who uh, who is affected by this but like by the end of 2012 the male suicide rate in Ireland was 60 six zero percent higher than it was before the recession wow i don't know if you remember but i certainly do i remember every winter during the recession there would be people pulled out of the river every winter people person after person after person and the majority of them were men yeah because when you take away when you take away a job from a man it it cuts a little bit deeper, I think, than it does for a woman. For sure, because, because like the whole patriarchal society is set up with this like indoctrination that um, 
you know, men have to be providers and men are providers. And so, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard these discussions online of being like, you know, don't, don't, um, don't uh, couple your self-worth to your productivity, that that's like internalized capitalism. So when you do that to like, it's done to men more than women, for sure. Um, women have a different problem in that and with the, within the same thing but um, when you do that it's like you you take away all the self-worth that someone feels so um, <laughs> it is it's detrimental to your to your mental health and to your emotional stability and then if you can't access a service in order to sort out your mental health even if you, you are can, because number one you, there's a stigma around it in the first place yeah oh I totally agree but I, I do think that like the jump of 60 percent was definitely you know recession related but I also think a lot of it was public access services related you know mm-hmm. that if you if you ring the doctor and you tell him that you feel very very down and he tells you to ring back on Monday because, and it's not the doctor's fault, you know, because he can't see you because he physically does not have, as you said, the staff, the people, the, the facilities, you know. And we are living with this. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say that there was like, you know, the, the female equivalent of this is eating disorders. And in 2021 or 2020, 20, or 2020, um, it was Holly Cairns who brought it up in the doll. Like there was four million allocated to eating disorders in Ireland and not a penny of it was spent like so they were giving the money but then the HSC weren't spending it so what's like that's incredibly what's going on there and that's because the HSC is a a semi-private body is like a semi-private state body or a semi-state body so there is like there's there's so much waste see that's the thing like we're talking about neoliberalism and they're like oh they they improve growth but it's like also waste increases substantially under under neoliberalism and capitalism because you actually require waste for profit which is insane and also like competition practically disappears you know like you the idea of of kind of like the consumer having a choice is actually disappearing before our eyes and has disappeared in a lot of industries like just for example um in america four companies control all almost all of the meat trade in america mm-hmm. four companies okay. nestle owns something like nestle owns something like 600 brands you know look closer to home though, recently that happened with the with the petrol gouging price gouging um people were like oh boycott but sure circle k has so many uh, it was all so they were like they had so many um garages that you couldn't like you could you, because you didn't have a choice you either had to drive into the next county to, to find a, a petrol station that wasn't circle k so it you, you lose the ability to boycott because it's an essential it's literally an essential service yeah, and and we see this across a, quite a lot of our um quite quite a lot of our, our services here. You know that you have no choice, or you may feel you have no choice. So, like, look at health again. Do you want to wait twelve hours in A and E, or do you want to go out to VHI Swift Care and give them two hundred and fifty euro? Yeah, do you know, like, you do have a choice, but at the same time, 
you know, most people are going to pay the money because they don't want to wait 10 fucking hours to get an x-ray. Mm. And this, the, the kind of, for me, the most maddening thing is that I personally think a lot of this could have been avoided. Um, you hear a lot of people say that the country was destroyed, you know, that, that people were giving 110% mortgages and that sure, what did we expect and blah, blah, blah. But again, neoliberalism is rearing its ugly head because it's the government's, should be the government's job to regulate yeah, that. Yeah. And they were not regulating it in any way, shape or form. You had lads there on 15 hours a week in the shop getting a 50 grand loan for a car from the credit union. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the regulator was just asleep at the wheel in a lot of industries so were they were they asleep or they were were they willfully allowing it to happen i think they were i think i think i think a mixture of both i think that the people at the very 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 top were just willfully allowing it to happen for the sake of 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 capitalist profit but i think that those in the middle management were just you know they they weren't willing to actually stick their heads above the parapet and say lads this isn't a good idea because you know it's like the nail that sticks you know the people at the top 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 knew what was going on knew like had reports had like data about how many people were dying yet decided to do nothing but like the middle management in in a lot of instances you like what are you going to do you're going to you're going to whistle blow oh yeah good luck yeah exactly like precisely you're not you're not going to ruin your life like like you know humans have an innate uh drive to survive and if you don't think that that is going to bring you survival you are not going to do it you're not going to stick your head up above the parapet um but I don't agree that that we had we had to suck it up like you hear a lot of people saying yeah it was bad but we got through it you know and like I don't think that those people fully got the effect of austerity like what the 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 people who live on and under the poverty line in Ireland now and the services that they can access have been absolutely slashed. And it didn't have to be like this Mm -hmm. because we have, we have another like country to compare us to on both sides. We have Greece where the people railed and railed against the IMF far more than Ireland did. They rioted, they went bananas and they got stuck with nearly a worse deal than we did. Yeah. And on the other side, you have Iceland, where they their three commercial banks failed and their unemployment went up by nine, like nine times what it should have been. And the value of their currency completely collapsed. So they actually sought a bailout as opposed to what we did, which was we waited for them to come. We actually sought a bailout. They sought a bailout. But instead of bailing out the banks and slashing their budgets, as the IMF demanded they do, the politicians in Iceland, they put it to a vote. And in two referendums in 2010 and 2011, the Icelanders voted overwhelmingly to pay off their foreign creditors gradually rather than all at once through austerity. Mm -hmm. Nobody lost healthcare coverage or access to medication even as the price of imported drugs rose and there was no increase in suicide. Wow. And they came out of recession sooner than we did and they're, 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 they didn't take any policies of austerity. None. They I continued think, their public services using the money from the IMF. Well, I think, um, you know, I, I used to get into arguments in abroad with a friend 
who was like very pro EU and me and my friend um, who's Irish, she was Australian and he, he my friend was Irish, were very anti-EU. And <clears throat> I think since Brexit, Brexit was the best thing that ever happened to the EU PR wise because it was such a like, it presented the Brits, because everyone doesn't like the Brits as like, these stupid fools and that uh, the EU as like this um, force of good. But actually the EU at its core is a neoliberal establishment. And it's like, it demands that you privatize services. Like that's one of the core tenets of the EU. There are certain things that Irish government cannot do without EU uh, approval because it goes against the neoliberal um, uh, um, ethos or, you know. Ideology. Of, of ideology of the European Union. Like the European Union is one of the, is the, the at the fore of neoliberalism in the world. And um yeah it's like i think irish people used to be very anti-eu until brexit and then brexit is just like okay this is a stupid idea to to do this but like yeah uh, maybe now See, i think i think the eu's defense and insistence on um like their their constant bringing up of northern ireland really gained them a lot of like Mm. I suppose approval in Ireland itself you know mm-hmm. like that that had a huge impact on on Ireland's kind of feeling towards the EU because if there's one thing that we know about the Brits it's that they they just Northern Ireland wasn't even in the equation you know they they didn't even consider it nobody spoke about it mm-hmm. when they when they were campaigning for Brexit it and Northern Ireland voted against Brexit you know and when the likes of um, the head of the IMF came out and the head of the European Central Bank came out and said like you cannot do that that's not going to work and a lot of the people of the EU came out as well it really gained an awful lot of of, of political capital here I yeah think. it did it did and, and like I mean, the EU is not always the baddie either. There is a certain no, God, of- not at all. But I will agree. I do agree with you that like their policy has been to deepen the market by yeah. liberalization, privatization, and like kind of like allowing social protection to be so low in so many of its countries. You know, like if we're part of this group, and as you said, there's laws on what we can and cannot do if you want to stay in the EU, like. I know Britain has left now, but universal credit in Britain, like I do not think that that would fly in Germany or in um, in France because it is so, so low. Mm. Like what you have to live on is so, so low that I don't think it would fly in mainland European countries, mm-hmm. you know, and oh, I know yeah, that they're yeah, gone yeah. already. I mean, like, Brexit was, uh, Britain were getting out of the EU to do what the EU are doing, but more like like yeah and mistake, I'm not, like I, i'm saying that brexit was bad for the e everyone to, like there was there were certain things about brexit that were legitimate and legitimate complaints but like ultimately and what like what was sold as the brexit at the, as the brexit promise was to do 
the opposite really of what they've done um which was like improve the nhs was a massive one you know 30 300 million 350 million yeah the big red bus the big red bus like that was they promised that they would put the money that they were spending on the eu back into communities and like obviously that's not the entire picture of the of brexit but that was a huge part of it but what they have done is just neoliberal harder. In fact, they're they're going they're going so far on the neoliberal like neoliberal. The next step is like fascism. Uh, you know the next. No, it's maybe getting, not fascism, but like further capitalism. But like you know, we're veering very far right. Like we're veering to almost back to Thatcherism. Yeah, you like know? The, England is not what's happening in England. Like they they so. You know, uh, for people who have been paying attention to the news, a great example of this like government regulation is the protection of rights and protection of employ- uh, like employment rights. P&O, which is a ferry service in Britain, just fired 800 workers the other day, like fired 800 people gone. And now they are hiring, um, they've hired, I think is it Malaysian workers? Who I now I saw a report. I don't know. It was a tweet. I don't know if it's true. I didn't read on a pop on it properly, but they'll be paying them a euro fifty a, an hour. Now I don't know what the exact wage is, but I know it's far far lower than they it's were. Way lower than minimum wage. And if you consider, you know, the do you know the whole Molly May scandal that happened yeah. a couple of months a couple of months ago, she was like. I just don't just get your ass up and work. I don't know why people don't work anymore. I mean, I know that's Kim Kardashian, but it's she said essentially the same. She said we all have the same 24 hours in the day. Beyonce and me. Beyonce and me, we all have the same 24 hours. And people pointed out like you're the people who work in pretty little things, factories, are working for is it five pounds an hour? Five pounds. Yeah. So you like in a in a in a neoliberal state, what they want is to deregulate the employment market, the employment laws, so that companies like that can do what they want and have as much "quote unquote" growth, aka profit. And how do you get more profit by paying the people who are doing the labor less? Like that's how you. Get and also profit. by and also by completely disregarding any regulations on your industry. Like just for example, you know, like printed T-shirts that have that kind of vinyl printing on them. Like mm. that's that's supposed to be done in a really specific way because that the process that happens when the vinyl touches the T-shirt and the, the, the melding together that happens, you're not supposed to breathe that shit in. That's really bad for you. Really? And if you take away, like, you, you know, it, if you're printing those T-shirts, you're supposed to have like this huge extraction system, which costs a lot of money to maintain and to run. And so instead, you can just decide not to do that and poison yeah. your workers and poison the local environment and the water and everything, because nobody is going to stop you. Like businesses are not benevolent. They yeah. don't give two fucks about you or the environment or anything. All they care about, as we have said, is growth, growth, growth. Thank you, know? and- when she went after those Zylon B people, you know, Julia, Julia Roberts were was climbing in wells, gathering, gathering evidence, like that whole, yes. like that whole thing. They knew. Um, Brockovich, a bad bitch. Yeah, bad a bitch. A bad bitch. 
she they 100 for years that that it was causing cancer did nothing about it yeah and so, like just like every other like the tobacco companies knew that exactly. that, that it was causing cancer for years coca-cola knows that their product is addictive because of the sugar and everything else that they put into it and so they put and, and they know that it it, it 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 contributes to the obesity crisis so instead they pay doctors just like the tobacco companies did they pay doctors to write these studies that says oh nicotine actually isn't addictive smoking's actually not bad for you drinking like, seven liters of coke every day like it's no problem all all g baby in fact you should drink more you know <laughs> I'd like to touch on just really briefly. I don't have notes in front of me now, but like I'm sure you can talk a little bit about this, Sirka, is um the connection between globalism and neoliberalism. So like we often hear people going on about globalism and the globalists. Now that is, you know, obviously that there's a right wing conspiracy that involves globalists which is mm. um spoiler alert the globalists in the right-wing conspiracy are jewish people um of course, of course of course they are of course they are because they are the most persecuted race on this planet yes yeah yeah but the globalism is a very real phenomenon and it is a very like neo-colonialism people say globalism and neoliberalism is essentially neo-colonialism um because what globalism aims to do is to it wants it wants so for instance if i the imf is a is is a tool of globalism they'll go into a country like venezuela or say they want to go into um a very communist country or a socialist country i think more now um cuba and they want to say liberalize your markets. Now, what does liberalize your markets mean? They say liberalize your markets and we'll give you all this money. Now, what does liberalize your markets mean? Liberalize your markets means that you allow um, corporations to come in and set up and basically um, take over the commodities and um, make money. Create create a banana republic like literally what they did in guatemala exactly like literally what they did in guatemala they take over um, they they you know they have undue influence over the over the government they can control regulations all of this stuff so liberalize your markets that's what that means and then well not not don't quote me you know but you know that's kind of what it means and then when they you have the 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 the, the money the loan you then because when you're a private when you're a small poor country you have to pay it back in massive interest rates and what that does is it keeps them in a constant state of debt so that they have to be completely relying on the imf for more and more bailouts as time goes on now what that does is it creates a favorable uh, trade agreement between a poorer country and a um, richer country in the in the west so for instance um uh the eu is trying to get brazil is trying to make that trade agreement happen right um yeah for their beef isn't it their beef now why would i don't you want none of that open up the beef market now i'm not sure the, the are, are the eu forcing them to have the same standards i'm not sure no no it can't like they can't do that because as soon as the inspector leaves they'll just go back to the way that they were doing it right. and my problem isn't even with the 
it's not my problem isn't with the quality of the beef my problem is that they're cutting down the rainforest to build these farms exactly so like that what what that like it's like when these you know say pretty little liars or h&m or whatever they're like well we can't control what our producers subsidiaries do, do. they're not yeah. us we're not them it's too they're, hard it's just so hard we're trying we're trying we're promoting human rights that's what we're doing we're promoting so yeah it just becomes a situation where the resources the very um because the global south as it's called which includes like africa south america and you could include like asia in that as well is very mineral rich it's very rich in in um primary resources such as wood such as like stone fucking coal oil gas yeah like you want yeah, there's this thing resource poverty have you heard of resource poverty you probably yeah haven't. yeah no explain it probably. like so like resource poverty is basically where your your country has very good natural resources so a really good example of this is um mica so um mica is this stone that is used in a lot of face powders for women's makeup um, and it's used in a lot of like ta- like kind of um, talcum powdery products as well because mm-hmm. it's it's shimmery and shiny right and you would expect as most people would that you know it would be like hitting gold or hitting oil that if you discovered this on your land it's going to make you wealthy you know or it's yeah. going to help your village or it's going to help your surroundings and it's actually the complete opposite of that so like mica, a lot of the words mica comes from India. And in India, the people there dig it out of the ground with their bare hands because resource poverty is where you see it in other countries like Nigeria as well, which is a lot of oil. And the oil is being taken out of the ground in the crudest of fashions because the people in charge of those companies do not want to spend any money. So instead of improving the lives of the people around them, they just bring pollution, addiction, poverty to those people. And they destroy the land that the people have worked for millennia. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. you compare this with somewhere like Venezuela back in the 90s, when they actually did it properly, they discovered oil and they went, we are going to build the soundest system. You know, we're going to build an incredibly amazing system. And for the 90s, the the GDP and the Human Development Index, the HDI, of Venezuela went up hugely. Mm -hmm. Like their lives improved an awful lot from this oil because they did it properly. They did not allow a foreign company to come in and and take it. Whereas countries, unfortunately, post-colonial countries like India um, did this is this is what happened. They they said to themselves, "Oh, these guys from the other country exa- know exactly what they're doing. We'll let them in." But they they didn't want to set up an infrastructure there. They didn't want to set up any kind of um good good way of getting it out of the ground. They just wanted it out now, now, now. Yeah, and, and isn't, so, it, isn't it nationalized in Venezuela as well? Yes, exactly. So when owned, you nationalize it, yeah, the government owns yeah, when, the profit. The government owned the profit and that goes back into, well, it's meant to go back into the system. Now, that's what they call, like, basically, that's what you call socialism. Like, that's what the, the charge of socialism is, is when they're like a, 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 a moneymaker like that make is going back to the, to 
into the government not how dare the company how dare the country keep their own money and is it and then how dare they then it's like yeah so if they were to ask to to liberalize their markets what what that would translate to for someone like venezuela is that they would sell that company to um a private entity like shell or shell and then shell make money from it from then on now is it precisely coincidence that venezuela has been you know the the site of many attempted coups um has had massive fucking um, you know uh, trade blockades and um all of the shit happened look at iran huh look at iran look at look at iran look at iraq look at saudi arabia yeah, like, so it's just like, well, I think... The, our fans of the crown will remember the Suez Canal crisis. Exactly, the Suez Canal When they were exactly. literally willing to overthrow an entire government to keep the fucking oil coming to Europe. Yeah, because they're so... And remember Prince Philip, and that was so fucking entitled to that. Like, I remember, like, being like, you're so... Like, they played that character at that time as being really, really entitled um, to this resource and I was like it's so interesting and like yeah so I guess the the issue of globalism like when people rail against globalism you know it's important to understand that they are actually identifying something something um they're identifying an offshoot of neoliberalism they're they're identifying like, something that you can't is- have globalism without neoliberalism yeah do you know as in a lot of people say, oh, but we've always had globalism. Like, didn't the Romans go to India? Yes, they did. But they are not somebody that we want to be basing ourselves off. People yeah, talk because about, you know, globalism... the Romans and the ancient Greeks and their expansions. Like, yes, they did expand across the world, but they were an empire. Yeah, I'm not a fan of empire. Is, it's re- like globalism as well is just the rebrand of colonialism. Like, that's all 100%, it is. 100%. And so, like, 100%. when you're talking about, oh, they went to India, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they went to fucking India and they fucking killed people and they took their resources. They took their land. A hundred. Yeah. Yep. You know, like, yeah. like in Britain globalized themselves. They put themselves everywhere. Like how they, they did. They, they, the, 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 the aim of the game of globalism and neocolonialism and neoliberalism is to get the cheapest primary resource that you can get the cheapest labor cost that you can get and when you go to these countries who have like not very strong labor laws um then that's where you want to go because you can take advantage of them like it is not a, an accident that h&m are based in cambodia and Zara are based in Cambodia and uh, Vietnam and all of these quite poor countries that have that don't have a lot of allies in and they don't have a strong union kind of background like a lot of a lot of western countries would you know because they industrialized so fast that they didn't get the chance to form strong unions and they don't have union protection laws so like being in a union in a country like Bangladesh or Cambodia is a very, very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, they were, they, they, I mean, they do organize, but then when COVID happened, a lot of that work was reversed. A lot of people were fired because they, um, because of the situation of COVID. And then obviously, who are you going to fire? Well, I'm going to fire these people. And it's not because you're in a union, it's because COVID. Sorry, bye. Very convenient. 
Yeah. And I, I just think that like by putting a name on it, by saying that neoliberalism is the root of all of our problems at, at, in the modern era. It's the root of climate change. It's the root of, of income inequality. It's the root of the 1% versus the 99%. That is what neoliberalism is. And I think that if you name it and more people understand it, mm-hmm. then it's going to be easier for us to, to move against. Because for a large portion of the population, if you ask them to define neoliberalism, they can't. And it's almost like someone living in Soviet Russia not being able to define communism. But it's it's also like this is the genius of neoliberalism and capitalism is the rebranding. Like this is why it's kind of important to they like, love a good rebrand. Love the rebrand because it obscures the reality of what's going on. It's like political correctness. They soak political correctness in the nineties, and they were like, hmm feel like this is a great thing to do let's just rebrand and you know if you ever if you're paying attention to the way the Taoiseach speaks or the way the Taoiseach speaks they're very 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 careful with their words and they phrase things in a certain way as to as to like talk around a subject so by calling it neoliberalism because colonialism became a dirty word right everyone understands um, at least in a, on an emotional level, what colonialism is. Like you hear colonialism, you're like, oh, that's subjugation of people. I understand that, what yeah. that is. But when you hear globalization, when you hear neoliberal, neoliberalism, because it also has the word liberal in it, and we're conditioned in the modern world anyway, and at least I was when I was growing up, that liberal equals free equals um, more to the left. And like a lot of yeah. neoliberals if, and liberals in general who are politically liberal masquerade as leftists because they are, they, they don't like to see, you know, they don't like to see racism. But for instance, but like in reality, when you scratch the surface, they're very, they're, they're conservatives. They're just conservatives in, in a, a less, in, in they're Mal- a wolf in sheep's clothing. Exactly. That's like, how Malcolm X. That's what they are. And, the the democrats he was like and that's exactly what they are yeah like the democrats apart from a handful of them are neoliberalists to their very core taxation is a form of theft i want my i want my taxes to be low and i want businesses to be able to grow and grow and grow because that's the only thing that matters yeah i would like to end on just one point you know i spoke about the human development index yeah which is like, you know, access to, to clean water, to electricity, to public services, to education, things like that. There's also a happiness index, yeah. right? And countries were asked to identify how happy they were. Ireland actually didn't do too badly. I think we came like 15th or something. But you know the happiest country in the world? Cuba? No, Bhutan. Bhutan. Bhutan in Asia is the happiest country in the world. And most people there live comfortably, I might say, on less than $5 a day. Really? Are they a socialist country? Pardon? Are they a socialist country? I've never heard of Bhutan. Um, So they were, oh, Bhutan, I just love to go there. They were ruled by a king um, for, for, by a monarchy for millennia. And they had no problem with that because their kings were quite chill. And then a king came along in the 90s and he said, um, I, th- I, want, I want the country to be a democracy. 
And the Bhutanese people were like, we don't want it to be a democracy. We want to, to we love you, you know, because they, they are really, really into the king. They were like, you can't step down. We don't want you to step down. He's like, okay, okay, I won't step down. But what we will do is we'll have a democracy as well. So mm-hmm. you get a parliament, you get a, you know, representatives and everything else, but I'll still be the king. It's no problem. And his son took over then and his son decided that the most important thing was for his people to be happy. Aww. So it is... It is illegal for any country, any company to operate within Bhutan that is not approved by the Bhutanese government. 65% of their country is forest cover. They are a carbon sink for the rest of the world. They take in five times more carbon than they admit. And they have, you know, like a proper education system. Like, you know, they're fair enough. A lot of people still do live in what we might not consider good housing. But they have electricity, they have running water, they have internet, you know, their their government places more importance on the happiness of their citizens than they do on growth or GDP or Mm. anything like that. And Um, they are the happiest country in the world. I don't mean to derail the goodbye and the ending of the of the um, podcast. However, I will just note that. Um, I have read about Paul Pot and um, the whole situation in Cambodia. A really good book by Philip Short, actually called Paul Pot, if anyone is ever interested in reading more about it. But he goes into how monarchy and democracy, like in Asia specifically, isn't a match. And like we could get into another uh, conversation, another date about how democracy, quote unquote, is being used to... Um, essentially subjugate people as well like the promise of democracy like you hear the joke all the time about the Americans like oh yeah we're gonna bring democracy to 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 Iraq um but the the instilling of western um ideals about democracy to a country that's not ready or has a tradition of monarchy um is uh is problematic we'll say at best so i just wanted to note that 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 the same in cambodia they had a monarch they still do have a monarch but they had a monarch up until the Khmer rouge he ruled as a monarch but he was not so he was not so nice um so yeah but anyway yeah i think really like in in bhutan it, it was the last kind of 40 years you know, prior to that, I, I think maybe some of their kings weren't so very nice mm. and weren't so um, like loving of their people. But it, it, the last guy and the guy before him were basically revered, you know, and when he said that they, they could have democracy, they didn't want it because it's alien to them. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that we have to realize as well, that to a lot of countries, they have their own way of figuring things out. And maybe our Western style of democracy is not actually what we should be enforcing on them. Yeah, exactly. You know, we should be enforcing something that's more close to to what they want in their culture. Because again, if you're forcing democracy on someone, it's just another form of fucking colonialism, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Guys, okay, thank you. Thank you. I was just Saturday's news when he wrote Uncut Jams. Uncut Jams. Also, before you go, what was remember you were saying earlier about Dev Lara being like, I'm gonna set up the gonna set up the NHS in Ireland. Yeah. But what was that name of that guy? I'm sure people have seen it. I put it on, on Instagram as well as the TikTok, but it's that 
the guy is it Noel Brown who tried to introduce the women with Dr. Noel Brown yeah yeah Dr. Noel Brown was an absolute um G he wanted to bring in a women's healthcare program in Ireland in the 50s uh, for it was called the mother and child scheme and Mm -hmm. when he tried to introduce it among a myriad of other options like free vaccinations and free dental care and things like that was that married women would be entitled to family planning advice yeah and the Catholic Church really, really didn't like that. Yeah, yeah. And it was sort of the whole thing just TikTok. fell away. It was, it was very popular. People were like, lol. Yeah, so do do add us on TikTok. Um, yeah. It's at a woman's place. Um, yeah. And it's at a woman's place, IRE, because I couldn't fit the whole world word of Ireland. But do join us because I've got like, you know, quite a few videos up there and yeah you're doing so. so well it's so popular thank you mm. thank you okay bye